Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is Melanie Peffer, PhD. She's the author of a new book called Biology Everywhere. I recently got the book you know, an advanced copy, and I started going through it, so I'm interested to talk to her about it. And Melanie has a bachelor's and a PhD in molecular biology from University of Pittsburgh, and she completed postdoctoral training in learning sciences at Georgia State University. Uh, she's affiliated with the University of Colorado Boulder as a researcher in the Institute of Cognitive Science and teaches as part of the first-year academic experience. And her research uh, is focused on how people learn biology with an emphasis on teaching about, you know, the nature of scientific knowledge and how we could use education to better help students, you know, understand and get to love biology. Uh, Melanie, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me, so your research essentially is into what, how people learn or is it to create tools to help people learn about biology better? Like what's, what's your focus? Yeah. So it's a little bit of everything. So I'm really interested in how people learn and understand biology specifically as it relates to the nature of science knowledge. And so that's this idea of where does science knowledge come from? What does science knowledge mean? What's the difference between, you know, scientifically accepted evidence and something that you read about on some random person's blog. And it's really hard to flesh out what people believe about the nature of knowledge. And so what my research focuses on is how we can use technology to flesh out what people believe about science knowledge based on what they do in simulated authentic science experiences. What does that mean though? Like what people believe about scientific knowledge? I mean, it's, it sounds broad. Are there aspects of it that have strange belief systems or? Yeah, it, it is broad. And so I think a, a good example of this that's relatable to a lot of people is the idea of the certainty of science knowledge. And so science knowledge changes over time in light of new evidence. So probably a very famous historical example of this is people used to believe that the sun revolved around the earth. And then we had telescopes and new data was generated that showed that actually the earth and all the other planets are revolving around the sun. But in you know, more day-to-day -day society, we think about mask wearing and in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And initially we were, it was not recommended for people to wear cloth masks and to not wear masks in public. And then new evidence came to light that said, you know, and actually that's a really good idea. And so that's demonstrating how science knowledge can change over time. So that's, that's one example. There's also examples with how we justify science knowledge using evidence and how do we generate that evidence. There's also the structure of science knowledge, so how complicated or straightforward things are. And finally, there's the source of science knowledge. So do we get our science knowledge from our friends or from scientists or from peer-reviewed articles or from the news or from our favorite political party? And so that all fits into how we make sense of science knowledge. So where it comes from, how it changes over time, how we justify it with evidence and scientific methods. So methods, not method. And finally, the structure of that knowledge or how complicated it is in our minds. 
Well, I can see that certain scientific topics have become politicized and censored and, you know, oh, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that. Have you seen that have much of an impact in what you're looking at? Yeah, it can definitely feed into it. And, you know, this this fits into a lot of other cognitive psychology principles about prior belief bias and in-group biases as well. We're more likely to believe science knowledge that comes from somebody who's in our in-group. And so that can be political party, religious affiliation, gender identity, cultural identity, anything. And so that also plays into how people reason and use information is that they're much more likely to believe somebody who they identify as being similar to themselves. So your new book, Biology Everywhere, what was the uh, the reasoning behind making that? So the reason behind Biology Everywhere was something that I've observed quite a bit, both as a professor, as a researcher, as somebody who's just out in the general public talking to people and talking with friends and family members and people from church, is that there are so many people who think they just cannot do science. This is a different belief than what we were just talking about, because it's this belief that science is hard, abstract, that it's for other people and not for me. And I remember notably, I had a student tell me the first week of class that she had learned to hate science. And, you know, that's really difficult for me to hear, both as an educator, because it's like, oh, my goodness, why do people feel this way? How do I make it better? And then as a researcher of where do these beliefs come from? Why are they there? And what can we do about it? And so the book came about because when I was teaching non-majors biology, a lot of the students were just that same idea of, I can't do science. I don't want to do science. I'm only here because I have to take this class to graduate. And so I was trying to find a way to make it just resonate with them more. And the two big things that I did that were so successful with those students were really strong focus on how what we were talking about in class related to the real world and a really strong focus on how it related to their own interests in majors. And it was hugely successful. So we went from the beginning of the semester where students were saying, I can't do this. I can't do science. I'm not a science person. To the end of the semester where I was getting emails and people were putting it on their evals saying, this was my first positive experience I've ever had in a science course. And what did that though? Like, you know, more specifically, like what's, I know, what's an example of a story like this and the person, you know, the student came around and now like loves science? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my business majors, he kind of came in and was just, you know, that that typical attitude of I can't do science. And then we started talking more and he did his capstone project on the business of biology. It's actually what inspired the chapter in my book, The Business of Biology. And he was really interested in how grant funding works and how grant funding drives research and the whole business behind how biological research works, how it gets funded, uh, the revenue streams that come into it. And so he was one of those students who came back around and said, you know, this, this was my first positive experience in a science class. I really get it. I see how it matters to my life and to my major and to my interests. And so that's really where the book came from, is that I wanted to take that impact and extend it to a wider audience. You know, you told me about the business major that said, you know, they didn't see how it's relevant to them and everything. And, you know, but then it seems like it skipped forward. And now all of a sudden they realized it. But like, what specifically did it? Was it a certain concept? Was it letting them know, hey, you're a a, a biological entity and, you know, biology is everywhere? Like, what did it in your mind? Or was there a specific example of something like a piece of content or, I don't know, a lecture or, uh, you know, lab work, like what changed this person's mind? 
I think the, the number one experience that really changed the student's mind was his capstone project. And in his capstone project, he was looking at um, how business decisions influence the process of biology. So how grant funding works and how revenue streams influence what research questions are asked. And I think that's what it really clicked for him is, is being able to take the capstone project and really integrate it with his own major and interests. Okay. So it doesn't, I guess it's partially, it's pointing out to people like being engaged with science doesn't mean sitting in a lab and a lab coat necessarily. For some people it does, but for other people it could be, like you said, the business side of it, looking at how and why and which grants are funded, et cetera. And for other people, I guess it could be ethics in science. And for other people, it could be, I guess it has a lot of facets to it. And you're helping these people find these particulars about science that jives with them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good way of saying it. It's about helping people make connections to their own interests. And that's what really inspired a lot of the chapters in the book, too, because there's a whole chapter on biology and music because I had so many music majors in class. And I'm also a musician as well. And also just the little day-to-day things. I post a lot of these little tidbits on social media And one of my more popular posts was about bacon because I had posted a a picture of bacon frying and being like, did you know, why does bacon change color when you cook it? So it's getting into, you know, that's protein biochemistry, which sounds really scary and intimidating, but that's absolutely what's going on when you cook bacon. You're adding heat and it's causing proteins to unfold, which is why it's changing color and changing texture, making it easier to eat. Yeah, I guess different programs and people have done somewhat similar, like they have Bill Nye, the science guy. And then, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson does this with physics and Carl Sagan years ago did it with Cosmos and, um, you know, they have Mythbusters. And so I guess you join a, you know, a rarefied group of, uh, of scientists that are making science more accessible and understandable to people. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, at the core. I mean, I feel like there's different goals and motives with, with each of the programs that you mentioned. But yeah, essentially, it's about really helping people feel empowered to engage with biology by making those intentional connections with other disciplines and with what you can see just by looking out your window. And I think that's something that people and parents especially can forget. You know, there's this, there's so much marketing about go buy this STEM toy or go buy this STEAM toy and do this with your kid. And it's just like, you know, you can have such a wonderful biology experience by just walking on your backyard and picking something up or better yet, letting your kid go out in the backyard and pick something up. You know, my son, He's three and he's inspired so many different biology everywhere tidbits that have come out because he hands me things and says, what's this? And then it's like, aha, there's an opportunity for a biology lesson again. Interesting. Your book, is it released now everywhere or when's its release date if not? 
Yeah, so it's released everywhere. So it's available on my website at biologyeverywhere.com and also through a lot of um, mainstream sellers. So it's on Amazon. It's also available as a Nook ebook as well. Oh, so what kind of uh, response have you gotten? Like have your students read it? You know, other people, like what kind of feedback are you getting? I've had wonderfully positive feedback from people. Any noteworthy stuff like surprised you, you know, either good or bad. You're like, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize people felt this way. Yeah. So I think it's been overwhelmingly positive, the feedback that I've, I've received. And I think one that really stands out to me is that it was a book bub feature uh, a few weeks ago and they called it brilliant and it sold very, very well in that first day. And it's achieving what I was hoping it would and helping people really make deliberate connections between biology and their daily lives. Okay. Any other uh, quotes or uh, notes that you're like, you know, you anything surprised you, you know, like there's, I'm not asking for negative stuff, but even positive stuff that you're like, huh, I didn't realize it would have that effect. One review that I got on biology everywhere that really stuck out to me was from a colleague who's also at the University of Colorado Boulder. And it was this idea of learning just because versus learning because it's really interesting. And so this person's review was talking about the, that how much they appreciated my approach of connecting the dots in major systems and our own individual role and why that matters. And that, you know, the goal with biology everywhere and any of my teaching really isn't about beating people over the head with information. It's about how do we empower confidence so that people can go look it up themselves. And so this person was talking about that's a very similar goal that they have in their classroom. And so he was quoting me in the book where I say, if someone really needs to know the definition of a habitat, they can quickly look it up. But what about the confidence and interest to look those things up in the first place? The confidence will last much longer than the ability to recall a definition. And so that's something I really wanted to do with Biology Everywhere and something that other people who've read the book have picked up as well. Yeah, one thing I'd like you to comment on, you know, I've done close to 3,000 interviews with, uh, you know, different scientists, researchers, et cetera. And reading scientific papers is not easy. And it, I had to spend a lot of time. It took probably like a year to go from maybe 10% comprehension to like maybe, I would say maybe 70. I'm not going to go beyond that. In certain areas, you know, physics and math, it's probably down to like 5% or something, maybe zero. But it took a long time. Um, do you have any ideas or help for people that actually want to read scientific papers? What can they do? Yeah, absolutely. This is a great question. And some something I talk quite a bit about with my students is about imposter syndrome. And so imposter syndrome is this belief that everybody else understands it except for me. And so I would encourage people to not let the imposter syndrome catch up with them. There's always something that you can understand and there's always something that you know. And it doesn't hurt to reach out and just ask for help or ask for clarification. Many times authors are more than happy to talk to you about their work or to answer questions for you, or um, you can just Google things. And so I would say, if you don't understand 100% of what's in a paper, don't let it stop you from trying to engage with it. Okay. Um, any other hints? You know, just reading abstracts and being happy with that for a start. Uh, you know, any other ways to get people or ease them into reading scientific papers? Maybe look at, you know, meta studies. Uh, what can people do? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so that's another good question, too. And I think something that would be good to keep in mind is 
making sure you're looking at a good paper in the first place. So you're not wasting your time trying to understand something that's just not a good paper. And so anytime you're looking at a scientific paper, it's always good to look for conflicts of interest statements and funding statements as are always going to be in there. You always have to be careful when you see scientific research that's funded by a company that makes money off of whatever the data is saying. And right. those funding statements are always there. Yeah, you can also see who edited the paper and what their affiliations are. Um, so the monitoring editor, your several journals are starting to participate in what's called a um, transparent peer review process. And so you can actually see the names and titles and affiliations of the people who reviewed the paper, as well as the text of their reviews. And so there's a little bit of a checklist that you can go through to see if it's a quality paper, even if you don't know all the journal names off the top of your head, as most people don't. So most scientists have their few journals that they read regularly and they don't look at anything else. But those are just quality control checks that you can look at to see if it's a quality paper. And then once you do that, the abstract can be really helpful. And then you can look for other just measures of quality. Is it a small study? So you can look at the N or the number of people that were involved. You can see was it correlational? You know, I had my teaching mentor used to always use the example of there was a it was a popular media article that was saying that people who get up in the morning, get up early in the morning are more likely to have heart attacks. <laughs> and she's like, all right, well, who gets up early in the morning? Do teenagers get up early in the morning? And no. And do teenagers, is that a popular group for having heart attacks? Well, also no. <laughs> Some people who tend to get up early in the morning tend to be older and people who are older also tend to be the ones that are having heart attacks too. So you can look for just little markers of quality like that. And then also look in the abstract since that's going to be a summary of the paper. And that can be really helpful. The discussion section is also a good place to look because that's where the authors are really going to be bringing together their results, their interpretation in the background literature, all in the same place. Well, what about papers that are behind paywalls? Not much you can do or what? So if it's federally funded research, it's available to the public. You just have to know where to look. So for example, anything funded by the National Institutes of Health or the NIH, you can go into PubMed Commons, something Commons, and read any of those papers for free, regardless of which journal that it's in. Oh, nice. Okay. So it sounds like it'll be really useful, this checklist that you talked about on how to evaluate, you know, the veracity of a paper and, um, you know, these resources and where to find, you know, papers that are government funded. Is that included in the book or is that like... Uh like a supplement upon request, or is it just because I'm asking you're, you're coming up with it now? Yeah, so I'm kind of coming up with it a little bit on the fly. There's another one of my podcast interviews where I really break down how to go through scientific papers and how to evaluate claims in the media. But there's actually a chapter in my book that talks about beliefs about science. That's actually where our conversation started today. And that can be really useful for framing our own biases when we look at scientific papers, too. What kind of, uh, I don't know, hidden biases would someone have? Like you, well, you mentioned, you alluded to it. You said if science news comes from someone that you tend to agree with, let's say it's a political party or just someone that you respect, you're more likely to believe it. But like, what other biases uh, could people carry that would, uh, you know, distort their perception of a paper? Let's say. Yeah. So firsthand bias is another good example. So let's say you know somebody who was killed in a car accident because their car went off a bridge. And it went underwater and they drowned because they couldn't get their seatbelt off in time. So if that's something that happened to you personally, then it's it feels like it's a really big deal. But if you actually look at the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration statistics, people 
who drown in their cars because they couldn't get their seatbelts off is a very, very, very small number. And people who get killed riding in a car not wearing a seatbelt is a very, very big number. And so you get the firsthand bias there because if it's something that happened in your family, it feels like it's much bigger than it actually is. Um, Confirmation bias is another really common example. We get these ideas in our head about climate change or vaccines or the privacy issues with genetic technology. And then it's it's a really interesting cognitive phenomenon. There's been a lot of research on it, how people will unconsciously discount information that it goes against whatever they their initial belief is. So they'll be they'll read things less carefully. And so it's really important to be able to check our biases and see if we're actually listening to the other side versus just confirming our our prior beliefs that we have. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. I don't know what's next for you uh, in your studies. I mean, this book is great. Uh, it looks like it'll be a, a big service to everyone, but like, where do you take it from here? What's next? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a, a few research grants that are pending right now that are spinoffs from biology everywhere and really getting at this question of how do we intentionally connect what's going on in our immediate environment and how does that relate to our identity as a science person and our belief and our ability to do and engage with science? Okay. Um, in terms of your students, is there anything else that you uh, you feel like you need to incorporate, or you think you made a lot of progress? And you know where it stands right now is you just want to you want to get more data from their experiences. Yeah. So I feel like I was really successful with teaching my non-majors. I'm teaching biology majors right now, and I think they've always really appreciated that, even though they're a group of people who who like science already because they're majoring in some kind of natural sciences major. But I think they really appreciate that cross-disciplinary viewpoint as well. And I also think they really like hearing about what we do in the classroom and how it relates to the real world. And so even with with students who already like biology, I still feel like it, that that philosophy that I have behind the book really just improves educational experiences for all students. Yeah, no, that's really great. Is this going to be translated into other languages? Like, are you reaching out to colleagues in Europe and in other countries? You know, to have it, it sounds like it's useful here. It'll be useful anywhere. There's students. So all over the world, people should have it. Yeah, absolutely. So I've, through Amazon, I have international distribution and it has been purchased all over the world. And I'm also, um, I produce a massive open online course. And so that is a, um, it's hosted through Coursera, and I've actually had over, I'm trying to think what the numbers are at now, there's over 4,000 students who've enrolled from all around the world. And so oh. there's there's people everywhere who are enjoying biology ever, which also is really exciting to me. So that's um, up on Coursera if anybody's interested. Okay, yeah, that's great. So I guess people can go to what, Amazon, Kindle to get the book? Is there an Audible version? Like, where can they go? So we're we're halfway done recording the audiobook. Um, best place is to go to my website, so biologyeverywhere.com. It's also available through all major retailers. And um, just ask, and it can be ordered for you. So it's available through all the standard distribution channels. And then the course is hosted on Coursera. And the nice thing about Coursera is that that course is free to take, unless you want college credit. Yeah, I guess it would probably be nominal after that, but I got gotcha. you. Well, very good. Well, Melanie, um, any other resources for people or, you know, start with the book and go from there? Yeah, the book's a great place to start. Um, I also am always posting just little biology everywhere tidbits on social media. 
advice for people who are parents and trying to figure out how to be more sciencey with their kids or who are homeschooling right now or teachers that are just looking for ideas. So I'm on social media with Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And anybody's welcome to follow me and get those little tidbits of information. I put out a regular newsletter as well that also has upcoming events and just little little things that I run into, questions people ask me, and then I write a short post about it. Okay. Well, Melanie, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.